This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we've talked about some unusual things here on the show, and we don't really seem to run out of interesting topics. Look at this next one. It's a phenomenon called synesthesia. And if you have it, then you are one of the people who can hear colors or even taste words. I know that sounds very strange, right? What does that mean? Well, we're going to find out now with the help of Jonathan Jerry, science communicator at the McGill Office for Science and Society and host of the Body of Evidence podcast. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. How long have we known about this? We've known about this for a while, uh, but it's been uh, it's been very poorly understood for a very 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 long time. And in the you know in the during the Victorian era and in sort of the, the late 1800s, it was it was a, a very interesting topic of conversation. And then in the 1900s in psychology, there was this movement towards you know looking for objective data and so it was it was it was a very because it's a very subjective experience uh, a lot of doctors and psychologists were kind of frowning down on, upon it and it's only recently that has been taken more uh, seriously that has been studied and for which we now have enough data to say yeah it is it is real we're not quite sure what's happening there but it is real okay so what is it exactly like what do people experience so a lot, there are lots of different forms of synesthesia. Uh, if you look at, for example, uh, the, the famous physicist Richard Feynman, he would always see the letter X as being dark brown. Uh, the classical composer Franz Liszt uh, would see colors when he would, when he would listen to music. Uh, and so it's often described as a merging of the senses, although that's not a very accurate definition of it. It's very difficult to describe what synesthesia is. <clears throat> In its most basic form, there's what is called an inducer, and there's a concurrence. So what this means is that there's a trigger. There's something that is being that is being seen, that is being felt, and that leads to a specific experience. And it's spontaneous. It is effortless. It's accepted as normal. Um, and so for some people, uh, you know, one of the most common types of synesthesia is that they will see letters or numbers as always having the same color. So for example, the letter A is always red for them. Again, it's not it's not a choice that they're making. It's just spontaneously and effortlessly happens. For other people, it's the days of the week, and they're always in a specific spatial arrangement in front of them. Sometimes words have taste, sometimes tastes conjure up specific shapes in, in a person's mind. Okay, so, and this happens to people, and what is the result of this? Is this something that they kind of always have just lived with? Is it, does it tell us something else about them? So very often it seems to develop at an early age. Uh, some people do acquire it uh, later in life. Some people will lose their uh, their sight uh, at some point in life and they will develop synesthesia that way. For other people, it's brain trauma. But the vast majority, they just seem to uh, develop this at a very early age. And it's not a medical condition. It's not. There's nothing bad about it. In fact, a lot of, uh, they're known as synesthetes. So people with synesthesia, they're often, uh, they feel pretty much okay about this. It's just, it's just an, a, another way of, of, of thinking and experiencing the world. Um, so yeah, it's, it's quite, quite interesting. And throughout history, we have seen this. 
we have seen this, uh, yeah, throughout throughout history. This is it's it's not new. Um, you know, Jean Sibelius was a classical composer. He also had uh, these kinds of experiences. He would look at certain colors and he would hear music in a specific key. Uh, so it's it's been, it's been around for a very long time. But of course, it was very difficult to uh, to study this. Do we link it to artistic expression? So that's an interesting question. So it, it seems that synesthetes are overrepresented in the arts. So there are more synesthetes than you would expect uh, who gravitate toward the arts. And it, it makes sense because, of course, if you are experiencing the world in this very peculiar way, uh, you might want to spend more of your time exploring this. Now, we don't know if it's a synesthesia that leads to artistry or if having a certain artistic bent creates anesthesia, uh, there is a hypothesis that maybe, and this is all it is, it's speculation, maybe uh, certain children, when they're learning about abstract concepts like letters, like numbers, that they train themselves to develop this automatic association between, you know, colors, for example, uh, because you can train certain adults to develop a form of synesthesia. It's not, uh, it, it does fade out over time, but there is this, it can be learned to a certain degree. So there is this hypothesis that, well, maybe, you know, children who are, who have this artistic bent, they are sort of uh, using its synesthesia as a way of learning about these abstract concepts like music, like numbers and like letters. Okay. What I find interesting about this is, Jonathan, the way you're describing it and the way people have a relationship with it, it almost sounds like it's, for them, it's a positive experience. It doesn't feel like it's a negative for them. Very much so. Uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the main negative experiences sometimes, I mean, if you're always used to seeing the letter A as being red, for example, and you see it printed in a different color, it kind of rubs you the wrong way because it's, you know, it's, it, it shouldn't be blue, it should be red. Uh, but that's, that's sort of a, a mild uh, discomfort, I suppose. But no, it, uh, uh, as a whole, it's not a psychiatric disorder. There's, there's no uh, negative symptoms associated with it. It is just you know, some some um, other way that the brain uh, can work. There, there's, there are many uh, ways that, to experience the world that are, that are normal, that are just part of normal diversity, and that is just one of them. So is this something that we're kind of learning more about now that we can, I don't know, take, have better imaging of the brain and understand kind of what's going on there? Yeah, so there are studies of that. There are brain imaging studies trying to see, you know, what is different about the brains of synesthetes compared to people who don't have synesthesia. Uh, is there something anatomical in the brain? Is there something functional in the brain? And there have been studies showing associations, but they're not very reliable simply because they test very, very few people and they test so many areas of the brain that one of them is bound to uh, show a positive result. And so we, so as, as far as we can tell right now, there are no differences between the brains of synesthetes and the brains of non-synesthetes. But of course, more and, and better and larger research is, is needed to, to drill down to what exactly is happening there. So are people more, like, how common is this, I guess? Are people more people coming forward with this saying, oh, yeah, like, I always thought this was just something that I had? Yeah, so based on the data that we have, uh, the, the, the survey data, so people who see letters and numbers as being of a particular color, that's about 1.4% of the population. Uh, people who see days of the week as being specific colors, that's 2.8%. Uh, people who experience uh, shapes when they taste uh, very specific taste, that's 0.2% of the population. So it is it is not rare. Uh, it is, it is you know, common enough. Uh, and there are 
there are many different forms of synesthesia. And so depending on who, who you read, it's going to be somewhere between 60 and 150 different forms of synesthesia. So it's quite, quite common. But the way you just described it, though, it sounds like there's different versions of this. So there's more common versions. Like you said, the most common one sounds like people who see days of the week as, as colors or shapes. Yeah, as as colors. So so associating a uh, a trigger of some sort with a with a perception of a color seems to be one of the most uh, common forms of synesthesia. Okay, that is so interesting. Then, so it must help people to know that they're not alone. They're not alone. There are communities online uh, for people who have synesthesia who want to talk about it. Again, it usually, usually does not cause any kind of distress. It's just part of normal sort of neurodiversity. Uh, but of course, the more we learn about this, the more we learn about how the brain works and that can have ripple effects uh, down the line. And so is this a spectrum? Like people can have all different versions of this. They might feel it more intensely than other people's would feel. Some researchers are starting to think of it as a spectrum. Yes, we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, sort of ways of, of thinking, ways of, of the brain working as being on a spectrum. You know, autism is, is, is a spectrum disorder. Uh, and so, um, so yeah, it, it, it might very well be a, a, a spectral uh, way of experiencing the world. Yeah. So interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Well, my pleasure. That's Jonathan Jerry. Jonathan is a science communicator at the McGill Office for Science and Society and host of the Body of Evidence podcast. We're talking about synesthesia. So maybe you're one of these people who you taste something and you see a color or you hear something and you see a color or you hear colors. Like It's so fascinating to think about how the brain works in that fashion. And this is something that has been documented for hundreds of years that people experience this. And yeah, we are learning more about the brain all the time. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer on this Tuesday morning and something a little different for us today. No, not BC Ferries, BC Hydro. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. And not only BC Hydro, but reasonably good news from BC Hydro for a change and and dealing with Site C yet, where the storyline for several years has been about undetected geotechnical anomalies in the base and budget overruns and everything. But Hydro put out a press release yesterday saying, hey, uh, we just finished the Earth Fill Dam. And it's a biggie. What is it? Let's see. I can throw out some numbers. Yeah. Six, 16 million cubic meters of Earth go into building the dam. It's as high as a 20-story building. And it is 500 meters across at the base. So this is kind of a big thing we've built here in BC. And if a listener wants to have a look at it, BC Hydro has posted all sorts of videos. And they have a drone that flies over Site C every now and then. And you're paying for it. So have a look. It's yeah, you might quite an impressive project. <laughs> right. But let's also talk about some of the money that has gone into this so far. Yeah, so the most recent financial update on Site C from BC Hydro said they've already spent, <clears throat> big number, $11 billion. Now, considering that it was originally budgeted at $8 billion, that's a big overrun and it's not finished yet. Uh, the budget is $16 billion, so that's, they say they, they won't need any more money. That's a relief. Uh, they think they can finish it within that number, so... Way we go uh, when it's finished, $16 billion, so what, double what the original estimate was, and a lot of problems in construction, which we know about. 
uh, on schedule, that's BC Hydro speak for behind schedule, but they say it's on schedule to be completed. They start filling the reservoir either this fall or next fall. They begin bringing the generators online toward the end of 2024 after the election and should be fully up and running by the end of 2025. Six generating stations, enough electricity for almost half a million homes in BC. Or if you're thinking electric vehicles, 1.7 million electric cars. That's a lot. Okay, so what are, what are the next steps here? What happens now? Well, uh, they've, they have to coat the uh, thing and build a road on top of it. There's still a lot of work to be done on the site. The big engineering challenge right now, Simi, is deciding when to fill the reservoir. So the river's diverted through two tunnels. Those tunnels have to be reconfigured in order to begin filling the reservoir. Uh, the way that river up there, the Peace River runs, the only really safe time to start messing with the river flow is September to October. That's low water time. So if they're on schedule and able to stick to the schedule, they'll start filling the reservoir this fall. If they can't quite make it, they'll fill it in the fall of 2024. But either way, that should not change, should not change. That's BC Hydro speak too, should not change when they start bringing the generating online. So, um, you know, the funny thing about Site C and the irony of it is the way the NDP's view of this project has changed. They in opposition, opposed Site C. John Horgan went up there in opposition and took his got his picture taken with a Site C sucks sign. I remember that. Uh, they, they, they said it wasn't needed. And, of course, the thing, you know, because f- electricity forecasting does change over time and the economy changes and, you know, clean energy changes and demand for electric vehicles change. So now the government is enormously relieved to have Site C coming on. Uh, If it were an NDP project, I think the Premier probably would have been there to top up the construction of the Earthfield Dam. They still don't like to talk about it too much, partly because Site C really angers some NDP supporters. So uh, they're letting it go ahead, uh, quietly grateful that uh, it'll be coming online in 2025 because the New Democrats now say, well, we actually need this power and we need a lot more than that. Talking about BC Hydro today, and I guess, okay, the Site C stuff is all good news, Vaughn. It is on schedule, uh, but the Premier did have some things to say about BC Hydro in general. Yeah, you know, the Premier, as I said, has, and the whole government has changed its tune about how badly we need Site C. Because what they said back in June is, even with Site C coming on stream in 2025, we need more electricity than that. We probably need a couple of more Site Cs worth of electricity, at least. And the reason for that change is, first of all, the Premier uses this phrase, clean energy superpower. But basically, you've got investors, LNG projects, pulp mills, mills that want clean power, and they want to know if BC Hydro can provide it. And some of the places they want the power, we don't have transmission lines. So they want to know if BC Hydro can 
provide the electricity and get it there on transmission lines. And the premier's comment on that is hydro has not been keeping up. He says it takes eight to 10 years to get something approved and built in British Columbia. That is not acceptable. There's that phrase again, Simi, unacceptable. Unacceptable. So the premier has appointed a task force, 10 senior officials and outside experts, including three people in the premier's office and two people from BC Hydro. And their job is to come up with ways to expedite approvals of these big projects. That's complicated. The reason it takes so long to get projects approved here in BC is regulatory overload, federal and provincial approvals. You got a half dozen ministries and agencies involved, environmental reviews, The BC Utilities Commission, which is independent, has to review the projects. And there is Indigenous consultation, big hydro projects, even small ones, wind farms and all that, transmission lines. They go through the territory of a number of Indigenous nations, and they all have to be consulted and accommodated. So that committee, that panel task force, it's got its work cut out for it. They've been given a year I don't know whether they're going to pull this off, Simi. Um, the, the New Democrats are deeply committed to processes and reviews and consultations. And the idea of expediting approval of major electricity projects is something much more associated with the BC Liberals. Yeah. <laughs> you may remember the BC Liberals just exempted Site C from review by the Utilities Commission. They said, we're building it. And we're going ahead. Do you don't like it? Tough. That's BC Liberals. It was opposed by the New Democrats. So what the Premier's talking about, which is cutting the approval times from eight to 10 years to maybe in half, that's not NDP history and NDP policy. So it's going to be fascinating to see what they come up with. Because consultation takes time, right? Like these, And, they, and they're not going to stop consultation. They're not going to cut down on the list of things or people they're going to consult, but they just want to what, speed it all up. No. Now, they do have some people on that panel, and particularly the premier has a special legal advisor who is himself Indigenous and is a lawyer, and that's Doug White. And he's increasingly become the go-to guy in the government for First Nations that want stuff done. So he may have some ideas around, well, if we cut a deal with this particular First Nation and they get to own the electricity project, then maybe they'll agree to expedite approval. I think that's the kind of thing they're looking at. Maybe they're going to do what the Liberals did and cut the Utilities Commission out of the process. They still have to make deals with Ottawa uh, to uh, have the federal government agree to environmental approval expedited, you know, the, the the briefing note to the cabinet on this task force conceded up front, this is complicated. It means changing a lot of laws and regulations and processes, or at least figuring out ways to bypass them. I'd say this is sounding to me at this moment, Simi, a little like David Eby's promise of affordable housing and safe safer streets and shorter waiting lists for your doctor or the ER, believe it when you see it, ignore the rhetoric. Because all of these things take time and they take people and it feels like there's just not enough people to do all this. Well, that's a good point too. You know, the 
They say that the government gets all of these feelers from international investors. A good example. Uh, the consortium led by Shell that is building the LNG terminal in Kedamat right now wants to double its capacity. And they're interested in whether or not the government, BC Hydro, can provide enough electricity to make the LNG with electricity. The first phase of that plant, the electricity uh, is not going to be hydropower. It is, they're going to burn natural gas to reduce the temperature of the natural gas and liquefy it and ship it out. That isn't all that green, as you might imagine. In the long run, they'd like to be able to say we're selling green LNG, which means that uh, we're going to use electricity to squeeze and freeze it, to use the phrase they use in that industry. So the government has heard that. And that's one of the things that David Eby is saying, Simi, that he, he, BC would like to be able to tell Shell and its partners, yeah, start planning the second phase of your terminal in Kitimat. Uh, plan to double its capacity and count on us being able to deliver you hydropower in order to do the work. Uh, it's a big question whether they can do that. May mean a new transmission line. Probably does. And there you go. EB says, well, it takes eight to 10 years to get a transmission line built in BC. They got to figure out a way to get a transmission line built in two or three years, Simi, because our competitors around the world, whether we're talking Louisiana or Australia, the other places, the, the Americans that sell LNG, it doesn't take them eight to 10 years to get something built. You know, back when Christy Clark was talking about LNG back in 2011, Louisiana was talking about it as well. Well, Louisiana has two or three LNG terminals, and the Americans are now shipping LNG to our customers in Asia, well, we're still finishing our first terminal. So we're in competition here, and EB's right that they need to figure out a way to expedite approvals, but I just don't know if it squares with the NDP's commitment to due process. There's a, that's a pretty ambitious list, though, right, to add that to oh. the housing affordability and the yeah. healthcare situation. I mean, that's a lot going on. It is indeed, Simi, and the Premier, you know, says we're going to see results before the election in uh, October 19th, 2024. Some new Democrats' advice to David Eby was, no, call an early election and give yourself four years to get some of this stuff done. He didn't go for it. It's his project and his commitments and his agenda, and he's the one who's promised results. So, you know, fair game. Uh, you can judge him on whether or not he's produced those results, Everybody in BC will have a chance, at least everyone who votes will have a chance uh, in the fall of 2024. That election is closer every day. We'll be into campaign mode officially uh, in September of, of next year. We certainly will be. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you know that veterans are two to three times more likely to experience homelessness compared to the rest of the population? And we have as many as 10,000 veterans without a home across Canada. And that's a group that's even been identified by the government as needing more help, but still we have these issues. And one of the big ones, we can't even accurately nail down the number of homeless veterans. So how do we even begin to tackle this? The government has put money towards this. There are programs to do this. And yet this problem 
you know, persists and it shouldn't. Why is it so challenging? Well, joining us now is Sandrine DeForge. She's the author of a report that looked into this and the Master of Public Policy graduate at McGill University. Sandrine, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Why is this so challenging to figure out what the issue is? So there's a lot of issues regarding veteran homelessness. And the first one you mentioned it is the fact that we cannot, the federal government doesn't seem to know how many veterans are experiencing homelessness. And this is mostly due to the inadequacy of data collection tools. So mostly in general, when we count how many people are experiencing homelessness, we count the data from shelters and food banks. However, veterans seldom interact with these kind of services. And there's no way of knowing how many veterans experience hidden homelessness. And that's why the numbers from the government vary from 2,400 to 10,000, as you mentioned. And if you don't know how many veterans are experiencing homelessness, how can you address the issue properly, right? Well, exactly. And I'm thinking, like, doesn't Veterans Affairs keep track of veterans? Wouldn't they know? Like, isn't that the easiest place to start? That's a really good question. So, first of all, Veterans Affairs Canada is not, doesn't take responsibility uh, regarding veteran housing and veteran homelessness. And more even so, where there are approximately 400,000 veterans in Canada, there are more than 300,000 that are currently unregistered with Veterans Affairs. So Veterans Affairs has no way of knowing who they are, where they are, and what is their housing situation. So one of the recommendations from our report is for Veterans Affairs to adopt a more preventative approach and make sure to register all the veterans as soon as they are released from the military. Okay, that seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it, though, Sandrine, is to think if you were associated with the military, Veterans Affairs is supposed to look after you. How do you let people go unregistered? Yes, we totally agree. And I mean, when we talk with veteran serving organizations for our reports, many, many organizations mentioned that veterans who experience homelessness feel let down by the government, feel they are abandoned following release from the military. And this actually contributes to them experiencing homelessness later down the line because it makes them reluctant to even self-identify as a veteran. And when they are reluctant to do so, well, that injures their ability to benefit from services and to access veteran-specific resources. So that is a huge challenge. Does that contribute then to the problem? Does that contribute to veterans perhaps feeling like they're not connected and therefore they kind of lose that place in society? Exactly. So there are a lot of reasons why um, veterans experience homelessness. And one of the major, major reasons we encountered is, first of all, the loss of sense of purpose once they are released from the military, but also this feeling of being abandoned by the system. And this is mostly explained by the lack of support during transition from the military to civilian life. So once they are released from the military, a lot of veterans will uh, face challenges accessing mental health supports and just health supports in general because physicians and professionals don't understand their experience in the military. Um, and also, they will face challenge just reintegrating the workforce because they haven't been trained to have these transferable skills. Um, there are many other gaps, for instance, lack of financial literacy, and all these gaps could be addressed by a preventative uh, intervention by the armed forces and veterans affairs to properly support them during transition. That sounds like a big project, though, right? Like what you're telling them is, listen, yeah. you need to find all these people who are not on your list. Yes. So there's kind of two things. There's finding those that are already veterans and that are not on the list. So we do believe that a collaboration between Veterans Affairs and Armed Forces for a comp campaign, but also collaborating directly with the veteran serving organizations, such as the Legion, Veterans Home, Home for Heroes, could help reconnect with all these veterans. But we also think there's prevention there. So for the newly released veterans in the future, how can we make sure that they don't fall into the cracks? How can we make sure that when they transition out of the military, 
they are automatically registered with VAC. They already receive all the support they could be receiving. I, I was surprised to find out in the report as well that there's no national program, Sandrine, that that provides like housing access for homeless veterans. Like you would think that that, that Veterans Affairs would have would be a place that they could turn to if they needed help. Exactly. So there is a newly released veteran homelessness program by the federal government, but this does not provide housing. What the program does, and it's a great step in the right direction, but still there's many critiques of this program. It provides funding to civil society organizations to better support veterans. So as much as we encourage um, supporting these organizations that do critical work, it kind of shifts the responsibility from the government to these organizations that already lack capacity. Um, Many organizations just face challenge applying to receive these funds, right? Um, And we were also surprised to see that there is no organization within the government that do provide these housing, either housing itself or housing certificates or even just housing specialists to help veterans find housing. What are housing Um, certificates? So that's one of the recommendations from our report. Um, We believe that within Veterans Affairs Canada, there should be some counselors that are specifically trained to be able to connect veterans with housing supports in their neighborhoods. So they would be experts on available community housing, emergency housing. And we also believe that for some veterans, just paying rent may be a challenge. So there are some programs existing under the federal government to support financially individuals to pay their rent for a couple of months. And we recommend that they do this for veterans as well. Okay, all interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time and talking to us about it. Thank you for having me. That is Sandrine DeForge, who's the author of this report that looked into homelessness and veterans in our country, Master of Public Policy graduate at McGill University. Lots of recommendations in there to fix the problem, but it is a huge challenge. When you don't even know where 300,000 veterans are when they're not registered with Veterans Affairs Canada, yeah, pretty hard to keep track of this problem, isn't it? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, parents worry enough about their kids online, especially when it comes to their kids in video games. But when is it too much screen time, right? How violent is this game? These are all questions that we wonder. Like, what are they actually learning? Well, those are all good questions to ask because there are some expert concerns out there that some countries like Russia may be using games that seem innocuous, like Minecraft, to spread propaganda. So is this actually happening and how? Well, Tanya Becker is the research team lead at Act Defense. It's a trust and safety provider for online platforms and joins us now. Tanya, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it, it, yeah. let, me ask, let me start by asking a question here. Is there yeah. propaganda in video games that we know of? Okay. Uh, I will tell you about research that we did about uh, Russian ca- uh, gaming communities. And uh, d- uh, during this research, we looked at the communities and we found out the gaming is the one of the way to impact public opinion, uh, reaching a large uh, population and specifically young people. For example, we saw online concerts as it happening in Minecraft games, uh, where was invited uh, young uh, children's uh, uh, young audience, and this uh, concert was organized of pro-Russia government only. Or another example that we saw how there is online instructions uh, on how to build uh, Russian like Z-related skills connected to Russian current war operation. We also saw instruction how to build 
flex, uh, to promote winning in the game. And this is all uh, can be used as tool to promote so-called winning narratives on Russia in game and outside of the game. Because after this, we saw such video of Russian people in Minecraft uh, making victory against Ukrainians. And this video promotes also online and gets thousands of views. Well, how does that happen then, Tanya? How does that get into the game? And is Russia the only country doing this? Uh, um, in my research, we specifically worked in uh, about Russia, and this is uh, what was interesting for us. But uh, it's happening really naturally, even because we uh, see sometimes that even children that playing the game, they starting uh, to be part of this promoting machine, and also to to starting to be a tool of this propaganda. In what way? Like, how do they become tools? Uh, for example, uh, um, I looked for one video of one of such uh, guys uh, that he, uh, it was in Minecraft, he talked with um, other Minecraft player uh, and they uh, discussed the war. One of them was from Russia, another one was from Ukraine. And uh, the guy asked him uh, questions, for example, who is the uh, richest Crimea now? Is it Russian or Ukraine? And so-called Ukrainian user of Minecraft told, no, it's Russian. Everyone knows it. And this is shows how even kids starting hmm. to be like part of it. Right. So do we underestimate that, do you think? As, as parents, as you, we think it's just a, a video game and we don't understand everything else that's going on in there. Um, yes, it's really hard to know it. It's uh, what is our company is doing. Um, as you know, ActiveFence is uh, protecting online platforms um, and their users from such malicious content. And we try to protect 3 billions of users every day. And we trying to fight this content and found it. But it's always happening. So what can parents do then? How do we, how do we know? Uh, we can read more about it. I'm also a parent, and it's also very important for me too. We can uh, uh, look at our children and to see what they're playing. That seems so simple, right? But also we think, oh, it's just Minecraft. It's just a, an easy video game. But I guess we really we have to be aware of, of everything that they're, they're doing, like what they're looking at on those games. As we know in ActiveFence, if uh, the platform have user-generated content, it's never simple. It is never simple. Tanya, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It was very nice. That's Tanya Becker. Tanya is the research team lead at Active Fence. It's a trust and safety provider for online platforms. So they are working all the time to try to make sure that people understand the dangers that are out there online. And this one is a fascinating one. It is the fact that countries like Russia use video games such as Minecraft to plant Russian propaganda in there. And you think it's a little subtle thing, but it actually, when you when kids are seeing it over and over and over again, it is very effective propaganda. Just one more thing, right, that parents have to worry about and watch out for, it feels like. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a question for you. So how effective is social media when it comes to elections? There are plenty of candidates out there who think it is everything, right? But what we're learning about these platforms is that people online 
aren't always who they say they are. So how can you trust what they say? They're just trying to convince you of something, right? Now, that was the case recently in New Westminster. Do you remember that story? We're going to talk about some of the thought that has derived from that now with the help of Daniel Fontaine, New Westminster City Councilor. Daniel, thanks for being back with us. Oh, thanks for having me on. So what is going on with that whole story that happened in New Westminster, too? I know there were supposed to be investigations. Like, where is that at? Yeah, well, all the investigations were dropped. Uh, there was, uh, uh, the school board did indicate they were going to conduct an investigation. Uh, they dropped that. The Community First uh, Party said they were going to conduct an investigation, and they dropped that. And as of today, uh, Dee Beattie, who is a school trustee with Community First, is still on the payroll, but she is on a medical leave. So she is um, not participating or active at the school board level, but is is on salary. And as it stands right now, it looks like she's going to be on for a while. Okay, and just to refresh people's memory there, so that's a school trustee who was found to be using her online accounts under a different name, but saying not very nice things about people. Yeah, she set up a kind of a, a fake account, uh, created a whole persona. Uh, I think the name was Alan Witherstone or something to that effect, uh, had grandchildren and was commenting on uh, local politicians like myself and many others, uh, commenting at making co- uh, very disparaging comments to parents um, who were critical of the school board. And yeah, it was all exposed because a parent, uh, actually a couple of parents did some investigation found out that Ms. Beattie was using a fake account, and as soon as that was um, discovered, uh, she stepped down and is now taking medical leave. Okay, so not enough being done to look into you know the circumstances of that. What does that tell us, Daniel? What does it tell you about, as a politician, uh, about the impact of these social media platforms? Like, can you really trust if people are asking you questions online or demanding answers for something, can you, can you trust the, who those people are? Well, I can tell you, if I had any trust before the DBD uh, debacle, uh, I, I don't anymore. I mean, I, I really, uh, you know, you look at all these these Twitter accounts, and they've got no names, no person connected to them. They've got, uh, you know, they're they're constantly. Some of them have multiple accounts that are uh, effectively tweeting and or xing whatever it is today. Um, the same thing. It's one of the reasons to me that back in I ran in 2018, and I. I just came shy of winning and, and decided to run again in 2022 and won. But back in 2018, I actually quit Twitter. It was so toxic and so, uh, you know, only this way to describe it was horrible in terms of the interactions with the public um, that I quit. And I decided that instead of, you know, spending countless hours on Twitter, uh, having these meaningless debates with these, these individuals who I couldn't even verify, I just put my running shoes and I got out into the community, started knocking on doors, literally thousands of doors. And it's really hard to fake being someone on a doorstep. <laughs> it's real people there. And that's, I, I think, uh, for me anyways, made a huge impact in terms of being able to engage with real people in a meaningful way. And it's very hard to do that on Twitter. Do you think that social media has an, too much of an impact on the issues that are discussed in political campaigns? Hundred percent. I think it gets uh, it's punching way above its weight. I think that you know it is in many respects an echo chamber. You look at some of the you know like I'll use the New Westminster scene. There are maybe a couple of dozen very active folks who are on Twitter who are out uh, on the attack and and commenting regularly. When you look at the fact that there's eighty thousand people that live here and and they all are individuals and have different issues and and facing different challenges. The only way you're ever going to hear what their perspectives are is if you actually talk to them. 
and you do not get to do that on Twitter. And unfortunately, Twitter and those social media platforms play such an important role now. They seem to elevate even minor issues up to a, to a level that's well beyond what they deserve in the community. And, and that is of concern to me, for sure. Okay, well, sometimes, though, it works, though. Sometimes it'll take an issue that needs to have some light shed on it and, mm-hmm. and bring it to the forefront, right? So how do you balance that? Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, you know, comment because Twitter has played an amazing role in some emerging democracies where it's allowed people to actually uh, kind of coordinate their activity and to sometimes overthrow governments, etc. It does play a very important role in a, a more mature democracy like ours. Um, it's it's morphed into something quite different. Um, in fact, it's it's uh, in many ways um, impacting and hurting our democracy, like we just saw in Westminster when Ms. BD set up a fake account, attacked her political opponents, attacked parents. Like it's, it's turned into something quite different in, in a community like ours in an advanced democracy. So there are some advantages, but there are definitely some, some disadvantages as well. Okay, what about other platforms then? Are they all the same in your opinion? Yeah, I don't think so, actually. Um, and I've been asked that before, and I've, I, I'm still on Instagram and I'm still on Facebook, and I, I find that Although they can have their challenges as well, um, they have spent a bit more time, I think, to verify who the individuals are. And there seems to be just a slight amount. It's a little bit taller than the others, but a little bit uh, more accountable. But they, they, you're able to kind of verify who those individuals are on a more frequent basis than a place like Twitter, which is just uh, feels like the Wild West sometimes in terms of who's on and, and who's, who's commenting. So I, I still am using, at least at this stage, you know, platforms like um like Facebook and like Instagram. Uh, I'm not on TikTok, but uh, I think they, they can play a role. But I think we have to be careful about putting too much emphasis on them and thinking that whatever's being said on those platforms is is everything. Because when you go to the doorstep and you talk to people, quite often what you're seeing on Twitter and what, what you're hearing on the doorstep are very different things. Right. But you obviously can't get to everybody either through door knocking. Right, Daniel? So how do you reach people who might only see you or hear of you on Facebook? Or you said you're not on TikTok, but there's a lot of, a lot of people on TikTok who are voters too. Yeah. And, and things like even like, like this today on radio, on television, there are still a lot of mainstream media uh, opportunities for people to, especially if you're an elected official, to get out, to communicate your message. And I'm not saying that, that platforms like Facebook and, and Instagram don't have a role. They absolutely do have a role. But I think it's also very important to get out to community events, to make sure that you know you are knocking on doors. In fact, I, I have committed to knocking on doors in between elections. So I'm not just knocking on doors at election time, but I'm actually maybe not as many doors as an election year, but I'm trying to get out, still hear from people, do that test sampling of what uh, is on people's minds. And I think that's way more important than me spending, you know, 20 or 40 or 50 hours on Twitter every week, um, tweeting out uh, about um, some some mindless stuff. I know, but for some people, it gives them a sense of being engaged, right? That like, I just don't know where you find the balance in that. It's really challenging. I, I must say, even in the community the size of New West, which is not very large, you're correct, it's hard to reach every single person. Yeah. But, but I think there are still very good platforms, like Facebook does permit. Um, there's a lot of engagement on Facebook. There's a lot of, in, in fact, in, in our community, there's a number of very large Facebook uh, communities where um, you can weigh in, put a subject in. There's a lot of people communicating. So there is, there is opportunity there. And for the most part, it's fairly respectful. Um, the moderators do, you know, do a fairly good job on that. But some social media platforms effectively have no moderation. 
and they are just out there and I've, I'm trying to avoid them, but I'm trying to encourage others to, to get more engaged into the community and actually see people more face to face where possible. It is an interesting discussion. All right, Daniel, thank you so much. Okay, thanks for having me on. That's Daniel Fontaine, Westminster City Councillor, talking about the role of social media in politics. Like, how do you balance that? If you're a political candidate, if you're a citizen who wants to be engaged, you know, what is the platform or how do you engage then without social media, right? That's the concern. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's admit it. We have trouble sharing the road. And when I say we, I do mean All of us, whether you are a pedestrian, a cyclist, or a driver, we have some issues when it comes to recognizing that maybe we need to share space. But is it always possible to share space? I ask because of this new report that is out from Hub Cycling. It says that a network of bike highways in Metro Vancouver would be beneficial, but those highways could likely come at the expense of room for vehicles on the road. Now, when I read that, I thought, well, wouldn't that just cause more crowding of cars, more idling of vehicles, more pollution? So how does that fix anything? So obviously, there are a lot of questions about this. So let's find out more. Evan Hammer is with us now, the Infrastructure Planning and Policy Manager for Hub Cycling. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So tell me about this report. What, what is a bike highway? So cycling highways are the highest quality bike routes. They cover long distances. Uh, they provide regional connections between major destinations. They're direct, paved, um, protected, lit. They've got ample width. And they have intersections that prioritize people cycling. And so you've got this along with clear signage, branding, um, regular maintenance, makes them safe, comfortable, and super easy to use for people of all ages and abilities at all times of the day and night. Okay, so how do you envision these in Metro Vancouver? Uh, they, well, they would be very similar um, to what what Transit has already envisioned with the major bikeway networks. So these um, really safe and comfortable routes that would connect major destinations um, where you're going to school, where you're where you're working, where you're shopping, the major town centers. Um, and would just give people an, an option to get around by a different means. So instead, you could take transit, you could drive, you could, you could take these high-quality cycling routes, which is, it would be another, another way to quickly and easily get around. Right. So you're thinking like Surrey to Vancouver or Richmond to Vancouver or Richmond to Surrey, that kind of thing. Yeah, but they, they, the, these routes would help. Um, you could get longer distances, right? So if you're if you're in Surrey City Center and you need to work downtown Vancouver, um, and you want to to ride, you could ride on this um, intuitive, safe and comfortable, easy to use route. But you wouldn't necessarily you don't have to go all the way, right? Like maybe you're only going two kilometers away. So just it would connect the major destinations, but also make it easier just to get around with, within your community. Okay, so now would you say this would be outside of the or on top of the existing bike network? So we'd have to add to that? Like, are you talking about entirely new networks? How would this work? A lot of the places that we looked at, so we, we looked at sort of um, some examples from Europe and how they developed their cycle highway network. Usually you, you start with what you have and you just, you just um, improve upon it, right? So one example would be the, the BC Parkway, which is already existing. It goes from Surrey through New West, through Burnaby, into Vancouver. 
Um, so if you were to make that into a cycle highway, it would just be a number of upgrades to it. There's, there's a, if you've ever ridden it, there's a number of sort of gaps along the way um, that aren't, aren't the most comfortable. And so it would be, be improving like the, the overall routes, not building something entirely new necessarily, because there's a lot of we have a lot of existing routes, just a lot of them aren't that comfortable for most people. Right, because in the report, it also says that some of this might have to come at the expense of road space, right? Like to expand the bike network, would you have to use some existing road space? I mean, it, it all depends on, because in, in the report, we're, we're just um, envisioning the possibility of cycle highways and, and looking at what that, that would look like in some examples from other other places. Um, so in actually building it, you, yeah, you'd have to make uh, it would depend on like what makes the most sense. Would it would it make the most sense to utilize an existing like um, say say rail network that you could tra- make a make into a a, a bike route, or could, would um, it be just expanding maybe like the sidewalk into a multi-use path, or you you might do something like they did in Vancouver, like on Hornby, where you are um, reallocating some road space. And science is not it's not driving space. Science it's it's that was used for, say, parking or something like right. that. Um, but yeah, so it, 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 it's, it, it just depends on, on what makes the most sense and, and where, it, where it's being done. It's tricky, though, Evan, isn't it? Because, you know, you want to make sure you're not creating more congestion, too, and you have to make sure that those cycling networks are going to be used by enough people that it would make a difference. Like, how do you make sure of that? I mean, we already see in, the, in, the, in Metro Vancouver, there's this demand for cycling. I mean, cycling is the fastest growing transportation mode in Metrovan. Um, and we already have a quarter of people who say that they cycle regularly and another 40% of people say they would like to cycle more, but they don't feel comfortable in a lot of existing cycling infrastructure. So you've, you have that demand that's there. And we even saw it recently with the provincial government when they released the, um, the, the e-bike subsidy, that was oversubscribed within a day. Um, so you've, you've, you've got people who would like to bike, but there's this um, this barrier that they, they don't feel comfortable in a lot of what exists. Okay, so you think that by expanding the networks, like having better connection between the town centers, that would make more people get out there on their bike? Yeah, having having making it easier to get around and making it um, making the infrastructure safer, so you feel comfortable bringing your 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 kids out if you're like biking into school or, or um, more people just feel safe and comfortable and some of the examples that we saw in Europe when they put in these these cycle types highways they saw a huge uptake in the usage so there was one that went in in London that once they put it in they saw an 83 percent jump in usage just on that one route hmm. well we'd have to see if that happens here Evan thanks for your time Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Our next guest this morning has one of the most interesting jobs that I have heard in a long time. And let me tell you, when you do this job, that is really saying something. If you come across a bee swarm, he's the person to call. Not to get rid of the bees, but to give them a new home. And to do what with them? Well, that's what we're going to find out. I have so many questions about this. Bill Peach is with us now, owner and operator of Bill's Bees and Berries. Bill, thanks for being with us this morning. Hi, Simi. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Bill, you must love working with bees. <laughs> yeah, well, I, no one else wants to do it, so someone has to step up to the plate, right? <laughs> okay, how did you start doing this? 
Um, when I was at uh, my first rental house, I found an abandoned beehive in the backyard and cleared it out and thought, hmm, I'm going to be a beekeeper. And 41 years later, I still haven't learned my lesson. That's all it took? So, you found a That's bee- all it took, yeah. An empty one, and then I just decided to start and carried on. Okay, so people call you when they come across a bee swarm, and then what happens? What do you do? That's correct. I, so I, in my car, I have uh, all the equipment to retrieve them out of the tree or in a chimney or whatever we need. And as long as I get the queen into a box, the rest just come marching in like the Pied Piper. And then into the car, and I drive them home and relocate them into a, a box at home. And then so, they pollinate my blueberry farm. So you are taking them home. It's not like you're getting rid of the bees. You're no, bringing no, them no, home no, and giving them yeah. a new home. That's exactly right. Yeah. So I gently transport and collect them up and uh, collect every single last one and um, bring them with me. And they ride back to my farm and then get uh, luxury treatment at a, a bee resort. A bee resort. <laughs> what, yeah. what, what is a bee resort? Well, at my farm, I don't use any pesticide or any fertilizer or any chemicals whatsoever. So it's a, a really good place for them as opposed to all the other farms that um, treat for things. So, so, so Bill, for, uh, yes? I'm so curious about this because if you're showing up and you're, you know, you've got the queen bee and all the other bees in the box, and then what, do you take it to your car and get in your car? Like, am I driving down the highway yeah. next to a guy who's got a whole bunch of bees in his car? Yeah, that's correct the odd time they've gotten loose and I have to sweep a hole through the windshield to see out. So it's a bit of a circus. But. They've gotten loose in your car? Yes, but um, it's it's very interesting. Bees sense fear like dogs, so as long as you can turn off the fear emotion, then they don't, they don't bother you. So it's just a case of uh, total commitment to not be scared. And so, so you don't, people, do you wear any equipment? People, like you don't drive with special equipment or anything, it's just you? No. no. It's just me, yeah. Even when I collect them, it's bare hands, no veil. Um, Bill, I have such admiration <laughs> for you to do this. Now, you must have gotten stung. Like, where did you learn this calmness from? Um, it just over years and years and years of, of doing it. And, um, uh, yeah, it, it's quite something. It's just it, it, they can really, really sense the fear. So when people are at my farm and I open up a colony and let them put their hand on the bees themselves it's such a threshold of fear that they cross it's fascinating to watch now i know that a lot of researchers and scientists like your farm too right because there's a lot of people who are studying a colony collapse so what goes on at your farm you do researchers come and and spend time there yeah well they use it as a baseline so that we have no there's no um like fertilizer pesticide or any chemical whatsoever for the, the bees so they can say, well, if this guy's bees are having the same problem as the bees that are at all the other farms that are heavy pesticide use, is it is it just the pesticide or is it something else in the environment? So it's sort of like a baseline that they can monitor to see. So the provincial inspector and a few other from SFU and UBC, some other beekeepers there just like to have a peek in once in a while to see how my stuff's doing. Okay, so if you're bringing all these bees to your farm all the time, like how big is your bee farm? Uh, it's tiny little uh, three acres of blueberries and a five-acre parcel. And I, I try to keep an average of 100 colonies there. And um, so all the neighbors benefit, all the other blueberry farms around uh, all benefit from having my, my uh, apiary nearby. Are you one of those people who takes your apiary? Are you mobile? So when, when blueberry no, farm, no, no you I don't eat, do that? I eat 
I used to move them to cranberry and raspberry and everything else, but now that I managed to lease this farm, I just leave them all so they never move. So I just keep adding to it, and um, then um, some of them fail over the winter, and then other ones just survive, and, and um, we just go. So I have uh, fresh honey, and um, yeah, it's, it's quite an experience. Bill, what do you think is the key here? I mean, we, we know that you know bees can are endangered, we're losing them, but you know they're thriving on your farm. So, what do you think is the difference? Um, just uh, not moving them around, going to all the different um, farmers because you know it's their livelihood, so they're required to use the insecticide and fungicide and all the other stuff, and it's taking its toll. It just the tiniest amount doesn't kill them on the spot, but over the years. It just builds up in the colony, and then um, it just fails. So by having absolutely zero chemical use whatsoever on my farm, um, they're managing to do a lot better than most of the other colonies. Can you tell when the bees are happy? Oh, yeah. It's it's like if you're a piano player, it's a key of C, the, the hum. And if they're a higher hum, there's something wrong. So it's just now over the years, if I lift the lid and I hear the wrong, the wrong note, and I know something's up and I have to look inside to make sure either there's a viable queen or there's some other issue going on. Bill, you're like a bee whisperer. No, <laughs> no I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I but, would. Uh, I, just, I just enjoy it. I, I really, really enjoy it. There's something about it when you get inside and um, it's just a fascinating hobby. Do you feel that from like that relationship with the bees? Is it two ways? Like when you say you can tell something is wrong and you go in there and you fix it. Do do you get that sense from the bees that they understand you're there to help them? Oh, sure, sure. If I'm like having an off day and I'm just not in that calm position and I open a hive, I just get ravaged. So I have to close it up and go, go back to the house and do something else for the day because um, if they pick up on it. The best way to describe it is that a dog can pick who's scared out of a crowd and it will growl at that one person that's scared of them. And everyone is from birth is be scared of bees, they'll sting you. And if you can turn that off and just not have the fear at all, then there's no problem. So they kind of force you to be in the moment. Yes, exactly. Yes, for sure. Okay, so you must be very busy because I know that now people are hearing about you. You're getting more and more calls. Like, what, do you go to every call? Like, you can't. You must not be able yeah. to go collect every swarm. Well, no, it's getting quite diluted from when I started. So lots of other beekeepers are, are offering the removal service, which is fine because I, I'm only one person. And um, But I do do wasp removal and a bumblebee collection as well. And so, yeah, every night I'm out and um, I do as many as I can. That's all there is. Can you think of a favorite one? Like, what's the most unique place you've had to go and get some bees from? Um, from a tower crane. The operator wouldn't go up, and the building in Coquitlam, I had to uh, put a harness on and go right up the tower crane and out on the end that swarm had landed. And so the whole project had stopped, so they were adamant that I get out there. That was, <laughs> that was quite interesting. I hope you don't have a fear of heights. That would be kind of scary. Uh, you know, it was okay. They, they made me wear a harness and everything else, but... But, all, um, all in the name of it, saving some bees. Well, yeah, it, it's just it, when it's what you do, it's what you do. And um, I enjoy it. If you enjoy something, it's not work. That's so true. So you produce your own honey, too? Yes, that's right. Well, Bill, so, now uh, now I want some of your honey. So where can I get some? <laughs> where can everybody get some? Well, I'm across the street from the Water Mania in Richmond. And uh, it's it's 
Silver City, that area. So it's called Bills, Bees, and Berries. So if you just Google that with a Z um, and um, the address there. So we're, we're available all year round, but we're only open in the summer for a bluebird, bluebird season. Well, I'm going to stop by and get some honey. Listen, Bill, thank sure. you and great work. Okay, thank you. Very we, much for if, the people, if people need to get a hold of you, can they still get a hold of you? Do you have time to go yeah, and get of course. How, sure. how do they That's do that? What I do. Um, on the website of beeremoval.ca, there's a phone number there, or Bill's Bees and Berries, there's a phone number there as well. We'll check it out. Bill, thank you. Okay. Thanks, Simi. You have a great day. You too. That's Bill Pichas, the owner and operator of Bill's Bees. You can also check them out at beeremoval.ca. You got a bee swarm? And you don't want to get rid of it. You don't want to kill the bees off, right? You call someone like Bill. Bill shows up, gets the queen. Everybody else follows, takes them back to his place where they live in like a bee utopia, I guess, and have a great time. And he puts them in the car. That's the part that I can't get over. You're driving down the road with a guy who's got a couple of swarms of bees in his car without any special protective equipment or anything like that. That takes a very special person to do that.